Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to talk about simplifying small business. Yeah, so this is a follow-up to last week. We want to do like a lot more practical and nuts and bolts look in how to get this set up and how to get it profitable so you can take a real firm grasp of your personal finances because both me and Christine think that this is probably one of the best ways you can go about kind of taking over your personal finance is kind of going this business route. Well, and last week was kind of more shower thoughts about uh, small business and being an entrepreneur. And to be very honest, I was way too far into my bookkeeping to think clearly. So I figured that, yes, well, there are a lot of things that are going on that we have to be aware of and we have to do. And of course, that awareness comes with time, with practice, with talking to other business owners, your lawyer, your accountant, and all of the professionals that you work with. But I really don't think it's that hard. And I think there are ways to kind of simplify down the absolute core concepts that you need to know to be successful in a small business. So what I'm hearing you say is you don't have to go out and buy 30 or 40 business books to get started. Oh, but I did. Yes, you did. Yes, I think your two read pile in the bedroom is about 10 or 12 books high right now. And uh, two read, if that's even a thing. I've read most of them already, but some of the best ideas... Sometimes bear repeating and some of the best ideas, honestly, if you're me, need a little repetition to sink in. So I'm uh, not opposed to taking a first look at something, processing it, and then rereading it again for an application. Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just learning and growing and developing. And really, you're just spending 20 bucks on a book so you don't have to make someone else's mistake all over again and call it your own. I've said this before. A book is someone's best ideas for whatever they've focused on in their life. So it's an absolutely amazing way to distill down a whole person's other experience into something that is practical for you. Yeah, and we're completely unbiased here. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We both publish books. So yes, we understand what, how it works. <laughs> it's true. So this week, getting back on topic is for really two different types of people. There's any budding op- entrepreneurs out there listening or people with existing small businesses that are looking to kind of simplify things, make their lives a little bit more straightforward and easier. And I'm also going to talk about a book that I read this year. Nope. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it, it works. We're a month into the year. <laughs> nope. A book that I read this week. Still applies. <laughs> Once again, it's way too late at night to be doing this. Okay, I'm going to talk about a book I read this week called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. And I'd like to talk about a crossover to personal finance because I think there are some great parallels here that everyone listening today, whether you're in a small business or not, can use. So first thing I kind of did in preparation for this is I looked at the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs or the BDC website. That's bdc.ca. We'll post the link in the show description. Now, these are lenders. These are the people that you go to when you have a great business idea, but you don't have any money and you want to get on your feet, but you need some help. So these are people you go to if you can't get a slot in Dragon's Den? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, They know, like this is straight from the horse's mouth. These people know exactly what they want to see from you. And 
on their website. They have tons of resources. And if you truly are at the very beginning of your relationship with your small business, this is where the planning can really be taken to a next level. They have templates, checklists, guides for just about everything out there from your financial plan, your sales plan, your operating plan, uh, employment Everything that you're going to encounter, they probably have a resource for it, and it's free. So it's wonderful to be able to have something that you can go to, look through all your financial ratios, see how you stack up, see if your business idea would be considered viable to their standards. Yeah, they have all these resources together because they want people to go to them with a ready-made plan, ready to present, ready to be approved, denied, rather than having an endless stream of people coming in saying, I want to make money. How are you going to make money? I'm going to make money. I'm just going to end the conversation right there. But they want you to seriously think through this. And there's like a lot of good little nuggets you can take to apply to I said, either your business or even yourself just to kind of think through all the stuff that we tend to kind of gloss over when we say we want to kind of get into business like this. Well, and so one of the things that I did is I pulled up their business planning template. And like I said, this is the absolute nuts and bolts of what they want to see at bare minimum. And honestly, if you can make yourself look viable on paper and actually extend it to your actual business, not only are you miles ahead from everyone else who probably hasn't done this exercise, but you're also probably in pretty good shape. But then I thought to myself, my goodness, there are so many people out there like me that will get so caught up in the planning and then it kind of gets this life of its own. And, you know, maybe you don't necessarily apply it in a way that is actually beneficial or useful for your business. So I'm going to be drawing some parallels from the BDC materials that we have reviewed today. And... I really wanted to make it easier. So when I'm thinking for my own business, and we've recently done our own business planning as well, you think about it as a narrative. You think about it as a conversation that you're having. So it's yourself as the owner, it's your business, it's your customer, it's your industry as the whole, the competition that you face. And like any good narrative, like any good conversation, there's key questions that you can ask yourself that can really distill all of that other work down to the point where the other work doesn't even become necessary. So when you're looking at a narrative, let's go back to some key questions that you would ask even back in grade school. This is the who, what, where, when, and how. Words that can be used to really jump into your business and what it will do, who it will serve, how it will do that. Let me give you an example. So first, we're going to look at your actual business, and we're going to run through these questions. And at the end of it, you'll start to see a plan forming in your mind that just by addressing these key things, you've created your own kind of mini business plan. And you can do this at any extent that you like, but let's make it easy. So let's start with your business. And the first question we're going to ask is who? Who is providing the services? So that could be yourself, it could be your staff, it could be a key person in your business. And the other who that's important is who are you providing the services to? Nextly, you want to ask yourself what? What are you providing? How does it benefit the customer? Is it a physical product? Is it a service? Is it tangible, intangible? And from the customer point of view, what is it that they want? 
What are they looking to your business for? What are they receiving? What is the experience that they're receiving from you that is going to give them material value to the place where they're happy to kind of trade their hard-earned dollars for this offering that you have for them? Where, pretty explanatory, where does the business take place? That could be a physical location. It could be online where customers now have the full discretion to access you at any point in time that they choose. I mean, it could be 11 at night, it could be three in the morning, but if you have an online store or an online presence or even online content, you can be serving a market while you're sleeping. You can be serving a market and engaging in a relationship with your customers at any hour of any day. This ties into when, like when are you then available to meet their needs? So like we said, if it's online, you have that incredible power at your convenience and it's incredibly convenient for them as well. If it's a personalized service, it may be more one-on-one. And then we go into how. How are you providing the service? How are they receiving it? How can you communicate your offering clearly? That's basically the whole marketing conversation. How can you say what you are trying to in a way that they will listen? What resonates with them? And this type of profiling you can do for your customers. It's where you flip the script and you say, who are they? Where are they? Where do they congregate? Where do they meet? What do they like to do? Build a profile of the person that is your key customer, the kind that you want to duplicate and do business with again and again that will provide you a good profit margin and be very, very clear on the who, what, where, when and how. And again, you can do this for your competition where they're going to be giving you all this information about what is working well for them today just by answering these simple questions about how they do business, who they serve, what they offer, where they do it. It can really help you distill down your own business plan. Okay, so I'm kind of looking through your who, what, when, where list, and I I think I've kind of come up with a good example to kind of help understand this. So I've come up with, uh, I've done a lot of market research. I found a certain segment of the economy and a certain sector that can that is just performing exceptionally well. So I want to create a project management slash consulting business. So who I will offer consultation and product management to government services. I will offer it to federal government. I will, the how is making friends with an MP. And what I'll do is I will take all this money and I will get someone else to manage this project and have them subdivided four or five other times. And I'll just sit at the top, collect the money, funnel it through. It may or not get done. And when will I be available to help them? Well, I'll just shut down the company as soon as the money's done. I've done a lot of research. Now more than ever, governments are spending money on consultants. This is a gravy train. Oh my goodness. That is not the type of business that we would encourage anyone to open. But but it's great. I, I get the money. <laughs> I tell someone else to do the work. They tell someone else to do the work. And then they tell, tell someone else to do the work. And then someone somewhere does the work, apparently. You, you know what? If you stop right there, you're basically any owner ever anywhere <laughs> who's figured out systems to the point where they're actually not operating their business anymore. They're paying other people to do it. Not a bad so gig. Just forget, forget the rest of that. I'm ahead of the curve. <laughs> Forget the rest of that, and we are just doing fine. But let's now take a look at what you would get if you went to the BDC and you're building one of their business plans. And I'm looking through the template that they have here, and you can kind of start to see the parallels with our simple five questions. You can really fill in the bulk of this without going through the tedium and the ad nauseum and all those extra 
words and feelings and thoughts that you have to have that really are unnecessary at the end of the day and are just taking away more valuable time. So first off, you're going to start with your executive summary. What is your business or your business idea? What are your activities that you're going to be doing? And then you're going to be going into your business description. And I'm going to read some of these straight from the BDC template here. So they want to know things like what solutions you provide for your customers. How does your company fit into the current marketplace? Where are the major initiatives? Uh, Where are you located? How long have you been around? What's changed since you started? They're going to want to look at your products and services. So what you're selling. They want to know how your products and services break down in terms of a percentage of overall revenue. And then because they're in the lending business, they're looking at the financing need. Well, for a second, I thought you were going to say they want to know how your products break down in general. <laughs> they want to know what kind of warranties you're offering on your customer service, <laughs> your products or services. Oh, dear. They'll also be looking at your key people, a risk assessment, things that will be challenging, like changes to laws or regulations or staffing, and really how you monitor and measure risk. So that kind of good old-fashioned SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, you're supposed to do that for yourself, you're supposed to do that for your competition. And then you're getting into your sales and marketing, where you're stating your mission, your vision, your values. You're looking at your industry, your trends, your marketplace, technological trends, which really to me just kind of reads as how are you going to keep up with all of this? Are you AI? Can you do AI too? Okay, I think asking are you AI is getting a little meta and you haven't watched Blade Runner yet. Finally, they'll be getting into your operating plans, things that actually make your business go. Uh, That can be location, people, key people, turnover, equipment, the stuff you have. They want to see your action plan, your contingency plan for when things go wrong, and your risk assessment. Now, all of that was a huge mouthful. And yes, it can be useful. But is it really more useful than constructing a good narrative and a good story? So that's why I prefer the who, what, why when, where, and how. Oh, I forgot why. I guess it's six questions, not five. Why? (laughs) You never ask why. Now, let's talk for a minute about marketing, and let's continue to follow this narrative. Story is the absolute best form of marketing out there. Your story should be your marketing plan, and there should be a story that introduces people to your firm and to you, a story that you tell about yourself, about your business, about the person that you're serving, that you want to make kind of like a mirror that you hold up to them so that they can see themselves in the story. They want to hear that you've solved the pain point before. They want to hear that you have the solution that they are waiting for, that they're up at night at three in the morning trying to solve in their brain. They want to know that you can do that. And they want really, really badly to believe you. And the best way to create that trust, that belief, is through repeating things that have happened in the past where you've been that help. I mean, my goodness, that's why testimonials are so powerful. That's why people do little videos of the people that they've helped online, things like that. Yes, that's why if you're looking at something online, that's why the testimonial is right beside the buy button. Because usually, (laughs) no, it's the little psychological trick you use in the marketing funnel that you use the testimonials as sort of that final push to convince someone that your product, that your system is the one that can actually help them because they need that third-party biased, even though it's technically biased because it's in your marketing material, but still it's the same cognitive factor that gets them to have that extra little nudge to push that buy button as long as there's a sale price beside it. That's a whole other bit of psychology though. But it's interesting because 
every single thing that you do kind of out in the wild west, out on the internet, it's all relationship building and every interaction that your customers or potential customers have with your brand, have with you, have with your story builds relationship. And I honestly believe that's why for businesses, social media has become such a powerful factor because every time there's an interaction, I mean, it's usually positive. It's usually something that's during an enjoyable time in their day where they're relaxing, they're going through their social media, but even just seeing that repetition of your name and and seeing that positive reinforcement of the value that you provide kind of feeds into that age-old story where, you know, the first time you see an offering and you see the price, you kind of laugh and walk away. But the second time, well, maybe you're warm, warming up and maybe it takes 16 times or 30 times or 50 times. But that repetition, that continual engagement, that continual building trust with that brand, with that individual um, name-dropping past success stories, like we said, they're is an interaction and there is a very real relationship that is forming in the minds of your customers with your brand. And that is something that is so incredibly powerful. So a lot of us in the services industry, that story that we communicate, that interaction, that engagement that we draw through our conversations is the best marketing that we can do. And that increased trust only comes through constant favorable interactions. Because don't forget, it's not a product, it's a lifestyle. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this can also work on the negative side. Let's, uh, who should we throw under the bus? Let's throw Loblaws under the bus. They got kind of the social media slap on the wrist because they said they were going to go from having a 50% discount on like about to expire products to a 30% markdown. And they had to reverse course on that. And then a few months ago, they started doing like Costco style bag checks. They got the social media slap on the wrist and a whole bunch of other things. So this can go either way, but you have to be very conscientious and intentional to maintain the good story because when you do nothing, the bad story takes over. Well, and everything these days is a conversation and everything that happens or that used to happen in private is now front and center with social media, right? There is nothing that's happening in a dark corner or a back alley or under the table anymore. There are so many people that are constantly present that it is kind of harder and harder for companies, large or small, to hide their transgressions, right? There's always going to be someone to find it, to see it, and to make it known to others. So yes, being very mindful of your business, of the image that it's portraying and the reputation you have, of course, is something that you have to be mindful of as well. And a good way not to do it is to hound people to leave a good review on Google or something like that. I've run into that quite a bit the last few months where I just kind of get badgered and harped to leave a review. Or incentive. Hey, I'll give you five bucks. Like I'll give you a $5 start. You can't even buy a Starbucks for five bucks anymore. But hey, I'll give you a gift card if you, you know, give me five stars on Google or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of feels a little icky, right? So don't do that. Um, now let's step into... But on the other hand, you could leave us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple. <laughs> no, bad timing. Yeah, we're, we're not slimy at all. Only positive vibes here, right? Let's... Let's say that you've gotten all of this right. You've gone this through this far through your business plan and you're now at the point where you're feeling pretty good about your offering. You're feeling pretty good about your place in the industry. You're feeling pretty good about your competition, your ability to satisfy a need of your customer. Now let's talk about the real elephant in the room, profitability. Oh, I thought we were going to talk about an actual elephant. I think we went into this last time or was that a couple of episodes ago? 
Was that a couple of elephants ago? It was a couple of episodes ago. So you said a real elephant in the room. <laughs> Take everything I say literally. That will definitely get you far in this world. Anyways. Oh, to quote Bart Simpson, where's my elephant? Where's my elephant? I think you did that same joke last time too, didn't you? It's very possible. It's been 109 episodes. <laughs> and we record these way too late at night when the kids are asleep because we can only do this when the kids are asleep. Anyways, profitability. How do you find the balance where you are profitable, where you have healthy margins and your customers still feel like they're getting good value, attentive service, and basically a product that is overall satisfying to their needs. So any business out there that is in operation today, unless they're kind of on their last legs and slowly going down that horrible death spiral, um, they have found a way to keep a margin that is healthy enough to keep them in operation. And we've said prior, I think I said it last week, high volume businesses, the margin can be pretty small. Like we talked about grocery stores in the past where you're doing such a turnover of product. It doesn't matter if you have a slim margin because you're doing it thousands and thousands of time. Whereas services businesses typically tend to be a little bit more high margin. Luxury brands are higher margin. Things that you would want an experience from are going to typically be a little bit higher margin. Yeah, those kind of businesses, they won't take an express loss on items like a grocery store will to get you in the door. So it's different metrics and all that kind of fun economics 101 stuff. Yeah. And so this is where I got into the book that I read this week. Not this year. I guess it was this year. I'm still so confused. Um, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Now, Many business owners fall into this trap, and this is kind of this author's shtick, that a lot of business owners start in business because they want something. They want autonomy. They want control. They want money. They want power. They want it all, right? They want to be on the top of the mountain. And many business owners quickly find that they're actually at the very bottom. They are last after all the bills that have to get paid, all the staff that have to get paid, and their dreams of money and profitability and free time completely vanish and go to the wind. So the entrepreneur who has started this business and finds himself in this cycle... Suddenly finds themselves in kitchen nightmares. <laughs> Wait a second. No wrong example. <laughs> Oh my goodness. They find that what they started out looking for is not there. And they've basically bought a job without the security. They've bought a job without the benefits. They've bought a job without the retirement saving on their behalf. They've bought an opportunity where they've basically become a slave to their own business and they don't get weekends off and they don't get evenings off and they're up till 3 a.m. And if you've ever had to borrow money as a small business owner, even if you have a corp, your personal name is all over the thing as the guarantor. So they're coming for your house. And if you work in an industry like ours where bankruptcy will suddenly put you out of business, you have to be very, very careful not to get yourself into any kind of trouble. So not only have you started this because it was a passion project, now you find yourself in a situation that is even worse than having a job because you can't just clock out and go home. The obligations are ever-present, they're keeping you up at night, and you are not sure if you can pay your bills or your taxes or even yourself at the end of the month. Yes, it's important to pay your taxes, everyone. Please pay your taxes. The CRE is a terrible, terrible creditor. They will find you. <laughs> so, not that we know from experience, we have always paid our taxes. Oh, yes, we have. 
We have, but we know people that have not. Anyways, so what is the stock answer to this entrepreneurial problem that everyone has? It's to get more growth, find more sales, get more involved in your business, grow your business more. That's right. How dare you only work 80 hours a week, spend an extra 20 (laughs) hours a week going out and driving business. Or hire someone, but then you have to pay them. So then you're making less than minimum wage. Well, yeah. Or you're paying them on commission, right? And that makes them unhappy as well, but maybe not. Who knows? Or you may have figured out certain legal ways to pay people below minimum wage. Oh, dear. Let's not even... Oh, no, but it's something we're seeing more and more around here. It's true. It's true. But don't don't put yourself in that category. Be aware that as you grow, your expenses are going to grow. Your staffing costs should grow. This is a healthy thing for staffing costs to grow. You still have to pay yourself. You still have to pay your bills. But now the bills are larger. The margins are the problem. So you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you have nothing to show for this period of your life, for all that hard work, all of the sacrifices. And I mean, it's not just the hours. It's the sacrifices to your personal life, to your family time to any other personal ambitions or projects or loves that you might have that kind of get put on the back burner until you've gotten through this stage. And the author says that this shortage of money is really your business trying to tell you that something is fundamentally broken and no amount of growth or sales will fix it. That hole that you're in will just get bigger the more you compound and grow. Now, this is something, even if you're on the personal finance side, that's incredibly relatable. A lot of people that are not business owners also feel that they're in this position where there's this huge shortage of money and their life is just not working. They're in so much pain. They're in so much debt and something has to give. I think some way that people should probably look at this, but don't do enough is that How you manage your personal finances is going to be the exact same way you manage your business finances. The two are not independent of each other. If you've got bad habits on the personal side, you'll carry it over to the business side. And it's same thing. If you've got good habits, they will cross over to each other. So how you will act on the business side with your finances is completely dependent on how you're already managing your own personal finances. I could not agree with that more. I mean, I have some personal examples that I was going to share anyways today. But I mean, my personal budget for our household And my business budget for my business are the exact same simple budget template. Exactly the same. It lists out all of my expenses in order of appearance, everything mandatory and a ballpark for everything variable so that I know how much money I need every month. And this can work for you too, whether you're running a business, whether you're managing your own personal finances, where you know walking into each month exactly what you need, bottom line, to survive. And you can then see if there's room to manage those expenses. Because as the author of this book mentions, as as we've said ourselves on prior podcasts, there are really only two things that you can do if you find yourself in this kind of a pinch. You can decrease your expenses or you can increase your revenue, your income. Option three, get a government contract. (laughs) Okay, your do-nothing plan is not what we're recommending on this podcast. I would like to say we both have incredible work ethics, even Cam. The disclaimer just makes it more suspicious. It really does. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's look at the profit first model and let's draw a parallel to personal finance so that it's useful for everyone listening today. So looking at your business, your industry, 
The author suggests that you create five main categories and not just categories on paper. He's talking about from your main business checking account to create five sub accounts, one for income, one for profit, one for owner compensation, one for tax and one for operating expenses. I'll say them one more time. Income, profit, owner compensation, tax and operating expenses. He also suggests setting up two, they're called no temptation accounts. So accounts that are really, really hard to get at. So you couldn't easily in a pinch just transfer money over. These are for like serious hardship, uh, really bad unexpected expenses that you can't just otherwise float. Although there should become some kind of margin built in there for the unexpected, right? Uh, as, as any business owner will tell you. Yeah, or even just being extra cautious and having like two, three months worth of operating expenses kind of tucked away just in case. That's the idea, of course. Yeah. And some people go a lot higher than two months just because your business is always <laughs> its bank account balance away from insolvency, really. Yeah. So you've got that savings account, you've got your critical illness insurance, you've got your disability insurance, you've got your business overhead insurance, you've got all these little things running in the background just in case. And I mean, you might have contracts with guaranteed revenue, but you may not also, right? So you have to really manage your expenses. So when you're looking at this from a personal finance point of view, like I said, this is basically the cash model. This is an envelope for your mortgage or your rent. This is an envelope for food. And if you don't have enough money coming in that month, you're choosing which envelope you're taking some money out of. And I mean, rent, you're not going to be able to negotiate, right? Um, but food, you might. So maybe you're having a bit of a leaner week and you're not eating hamburger. You're eating, what is that, like Beyond Meat stuff? Oh, wait, it's just as expensive. I, I'm pretty sure that's more expensive. <laughs> okay, you're eating beans. <laughs> we're, just, we're just eating lentils. Uh, you cold, know, but cold, uncooked cold lentils. lentils. You cook it over a... A match that well, you set under Those are expensive too. Your, oh no. Okay. So the bottom line is that in your personal finance life, you can usually make compromises. There are usually categories that you can reduce a little bit, maybe not a lot, but you get a little bit of wiggle room where you can make discretionary choices. And the author suggests that it is beneficial to look at your operating expenses in the same way. And even if you have never taken a profit before in business, to start transferring over 1% or 2% or 3% of whatever you found that you could cut from your operating expenses over into your profit. And the idea is, like when you're working towards a saving goal on the personal finance side, is to immediately remove the money from your checking account balance so that you do not have the temptation to spend it. Because if you're logging into your bank account every week or every couple of weeks and you see money there, guess what you're going to do? Responsibly save it? <laughs> That's what we hope you'll do. We hope you'll embrace this world of being frugal. We hope you'll love it as much as we have. But for most people, Yes, they will spend it irresponsibly or you know what? They'll spend it and they'll justify it as being a responsible way to grow their business, but they will find a way to spend it. So like and a $500 chair? $500 chairs. And you know what? Just as people have lifestyle creep, you everybody's heard of that lifestyle creep concept. As your income goes up, your lifestyle goes up to match it. Businesses have the same thing. Suddenly you're having office parties. 
okay, maybe not parties, but suddenly you have nicer machinery or you're doing something that's more efficient or you've hired a coach or you've, I don't know what it is. You've upgraded your office space and your new, your new rent costs so much more, or you hired an extra staff person to make your job easier, but now that's more money out the door. There are always justifiable ways to spend more money. And that is a scary thing. So the author's suggestion is really to embrace frugality, get the money out of your bank account and get it allocated to the places where you'll need it, like setting it aside for taxes so that you're not surprised every year. I mean, here in Canada, I know with my business, um, what we do is we pay a regular installment every month, right? So I have a certain amount of tax based on my last year's earnings that is being paid to the CRA before the 15th of the month every month, just to make sure that when I file my tax return at the end of my fiscal year, that I don't have a big account balance owing. I may owe some money if I've had a good year and I've had increased revenue that I have not yet paid taxes on. But that core, which is my basic operating that I know is going to be there, um, is going to be accounted for for the most part. And same argument with operating expenses. You want to make sure that there's money in that account to pay your staff, to pay your rent, to pay for office supplies, to pay for whatever things you need to buy to make your product. Um, If you have to buy a product to then sell the product, you need to make sure you have those margins available as well. Yeah, to have a little bit of money to uh, send a nice donation to your member of parliament <laughs> and your member of legislative assembly and your city councillor. Did I miss anyone? You're really going for that contract, aren't you? Oh, yes. I've, I've seen how much is allocated in the last budget for that stuff. So going back to this profit first concept, now as you are slowly introducing a model of taking a little bit of percentage for yourself, putting it into your profit account, the idea is that as you start to grow... Rather than letting that lifestyle creep occur to your business, you're supposed to increase the money that goes into that profit account. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways that can you can do this. You can look at it as a percentage of your whole. And percentages are usually one of the most easiest ways to communicate these things because it doesn't matter what the dollar amount is, the percentage stays fixed, and then you know that you're on target. Um, but what do you do with this money in the profit account? The author suggests that you do not reinvested into the business. You do not use it for any business expenses at all whatsoever. The concept is that you use this profit account for yourself personally as a business owner to fulfill all of the reasons that you got into business as an entrepreneur in the first place. It's the ultimate pay yourself first. It's the ultimate go on a vacation with money you've set aside so it's not going on your credit card and you don't have to worry about paying it off when you're back. And the way that this would work on the personal finance side is setting aside that little bit, even if it's only 1% of your take-home pay, into that account for that vacation, for that car, for that gift to yourself, whatever it might be that you'll materially enjoy that will enhance your life That will take you out of the slog of paying the rent, paying the mortgages, repaying your debt, all of these things that we get so stuck in doing that kind of suck the joy out of our lives. We're trying to put that joy back in. Now, the author has another recommendation that I thought was interesting as well, and he likes to tell business owners to focus on paying off debt to free up cash flow. Now, again, this is an American author. There's no discussion in the book about the deductibility of business debt or the opportunity cost. He's only looking at the cost of 
money and of cash flow and of freedom. So in personal finance, this would relate to people that want to cut expenses, reduce lifestyle, reduce big debts like their mortgage, and maybe fire, go for the financially independent retire early route or kind of get more enjoyment overall out of their lives. So from that point of view, there's nothing that you can do to get that level of security more than paying down debt, right? Like if we ignore all the other reasons that you would keep debt for business purposes, this is a way to enhance cash flow. Yeah, because of the, the market we're in right now, it is suddenly back in fashion to get rid of your debts because of how high interest rates have gone. And depending where your fixed variable, this works on the exact same thing on the business side too, whether you've got a loan, whether you've got a bond or something else, it's suddenly gotten much more fashionable to kind of deal with that debt as fast as possible to kind of get your cash flow back into a decent place. Well, and I think if this period of time has taught us anything, it's that for years when interest rates were low, people ignored their debts because their carrying costs were so low and they ballooned and ballooned and skyrocketed and skyrocketed. And then very, very quickly, you have to pay the piper because when interest rates changed, yes, we were in an anomaly, but even in the past historically, when interest rates increase, you're suddenly responsible for that that increase and it does take a huge bite into your lifestyle on the personal side. So really, if you can't stress test your own debt and feel comfortable with interest rate increases in the good years, in the years where interest rates are low, you should be questioning the viability or at least the peace of mind that you need to experience to feel comfortable with that debt and to feel comfortable with what it could do to your budget when things go wrong. Yeah, but then again, I could be wrong. I I saw an article said that only about half of the businesses have actually paid back their curb debt. So maybe not all of them are pretty gung-ho to kind of deal with their debts. So as parting thoughts on all of this, whether you're a small business owner or whether you're just looking at your own personal finances, watch your margins. Be aware of where your profit is. Be aware of what is left over. And in the business world, be aware of your total operating expenses, the services you offer, your price point. Make sure that that margin that will guarantee your profitability is built into the system so that you can have long-term lasting success that doesn't cause pain and can actually help you build the business that will give you the lifestyle that you deserve. Yeah, and if you have like a general store or a type of grocery store, just make sure to keep a close eye on your margin as well. Oh, no. <laughs> Watch your margarine. Is that our parting advice? Watch your margarine. Oh my God. You know what? I can't top that. So we're just going to wrap this up. Thanks for listening. Take care. All the best. 